I mean, the thing that I'm most interested in about this strip is just that Jack's like, Jack's got just like big boobs. Like they're huge. Personally, uh, you know, uh, what word do I want? Arousing? I don't know. Welcome back to Check Displaced, the podcast where we're horny for Derrida, but not Foucault. And also we reread Check Please or something. Today we're going to be talking about strip 2.4, Hazapalooza, which was originally posted on December 3rd, 2014. I'm Secret, and you are? I'm Tomato, and I do believe that Derrida is the only handsome French philosopher. Come at me. I'm sorry this is our podcast. I feel bad about it. I'm personally embarrassed. I don't endorse it. But what can you do? From his room at the house, Biddy tells the audience that tonight they're hazing the frogs. At favor, Shitty welcomes everyone to Hazapalooza and then announces that, in addition to their rookies, they'll be hazing Jack, who never, as Shitty says, endured the gauntlet. The gauntlet consists of Nursey, Dex, Chowder, and Jack kneeling on the ice in their boxers, flanked by flaming traffic cones. Taking pity on them, Biddy announces that because they're being hazed, they'll have to choose between a sweater or some pie. Shitty and Holster both rebuke him, while Nursey makes fun of Chowder for being a lightweight, and Dex gushes about Jack's frighteningly large ass and says Jack should have gone first in the draft. Not Kent Parson. Shitty makes them howl like wolves, even though, as Jack points out, they are frogs. That was so professional. Secret wrote the summary this time, and I'm so impressed. It sounds so good. I always sound like an idiot. I'm just like, oh, wow, this is why people, quote, prepare for their podcasts. Thank well, you. What's, what's ironic is that we prepare for these podcasts a lot. Like, we write pages and pages of outlines and we do research and like think through things and we literally talk about like is this how this should be ordered should we talk about this first and then that how does it flow should we hold this topic for a later episode because it may or may not make sense here like we actually plan quite a bit but then the summaries we never we never like write them in advance. I just look at the comic and I'm like, I guess the Biddy's in his room and he's talking to his vlog. And then, so it's like, I don't know. I was like, what if I took three and a half minutes to write a summary? Let us know in the comments if you think it worked. You started us off with a very important question. Does Biddy look gay? What do you think? This is our new segment, Gay Biddy Watch. And I'm not saying whether or not he looks gay. All I'm saying is that he is wearing the same getup as everybody else, except he's paired his red muscle tank with knee-length cutoffs, which I think are gay. Yes, agreed. And I also think that the particular way that he's tied his headband, which is not dissimilar to the way that Shitty has tied his headband, but like slightly different, does feel slightly gay to me. I can't articulate to you why. That's just my instinct. 
I also think it's fun to point out that in the background of one of these panels, Wiki is wearing the same gray short sleeve polo that Biddy was wearing in 1.2. But as I belatedly realized, I guess Wiki is also gay. At the very least, he marries a man. You know, I don't know the ins and outs of Wiki's identity, but I do know that he uh, shacks up with Ollie there. So clearly this gray polo is indicative of something. Yeah, I mean, I guess my my point in noticing this is basically just to say that, like, I am convinced that with few notable limited exceptions, there's nothing especially gay about the way that Biddy dresses, usually. So I think the fact that one of, like, the frattiest, most generic characters in this particular comic, who's just, like, background anonymous hockey bro to a T, is wearing the same thing that Biddy has worn within the past couple strips. It's just like, yeah, it's like Biddy just kind of dresses like a male college student, slightly preppy. Yeah. As we've discussed before, I think it's mostly in his body language that we can read his sexuality into the character. I guess also it's sort of the obvious visible difference that Biddy is short and slight, but it turns out that actually not all short and slight men are gay. So surprise everybody. Not always the case. So then, hot on the heels of that flaming success, no pun intended, I would also like to introduce our new segment, Chatter Infantilism Corner. So I think that his, like, general incoherence while he's drunk, in contract to Dex's oversharing and Nurse's sort of unflappability, is kind of babyish. It's like the way that Chowder acts when he's lost his scruples or his inhibitions is that he just loses several like cue points or something. Also, I think the fact that he's a lightweight and it's pointed out both in the blog post and in the comic is kind of, you know, it's like a, a younger, less experienced character wouldn't be able to like hold their alcohol. I also think that we can see it in his body language too. In the panel where Chowder, Dex, Jack, and Nursey are all kneeling with their hands tied on the ice. Jack is in the center, Nursey kind of leaning over his shoulder, Dex bumping shoulders with Jack, but in a fairly egalitarian way. Like they're equally, though they're touching shoulders, they're equally of a height. They're not especially leaning one way or the other. Chowder, meanwhile, is like cheek to Dex's shoulder, fully just leaning on Dex in a way that is pretty childish or at the very least less able to hold on to his marbles, I guess, than the other three characters in the scene. So that feeds as well. Obviously, it's illustrating the fact of his lightweightness, I guess, but it's a visual reminder that he is somehow younger or less experienced or more infantilized than the other characters. And I would say the point of this segment, maybe it'll be recurring. Let us know in the comments. To me, it's not to like condemn the way that Chowder is written and it's not to imply that the way that he's treated in fandom is always okay because it's a characterization that's coming from the comic. It's it's really just to like keep track of where that characterization comes from. And I'm trying to pretty much substantiate a case that the character is being presented as if he has a particular kind of affect. And when people in the fandom 
write him as a little childish, a little babyish, younger and less sophisticated seeming than the other characters. Not that it's okay, but that it's drawing specifically on how he's constructed within the comic. All right, so... Hayes-a-palooza. Shitty makes a comment that Hayes-a-palooza was formerly Hayesstock. I thought this was interesting and funny because, of course, Woodstock came before Lollapalooza. Woodstock was famously, famously in 1969. Lollapalooza was inaugurated. It really had its heyday as a traveling music festival organized by Jeans Addiction's Perry Farrell in the 1990s, and it was sort of a a benchmark of the grunge alternative rock scene at the time, the kind of like alternative radio vibe. And then in, oh, I want to say 2005, it was revived as a standalone event in Chicago. And it is a massive, well, not this year, obviously, but in general, it has become a massive, massive, hugely like hundreds of thousands of people attend this event every year and it is in a lot of ways kind of synonymous or it was for a time with mainstream indie or mainstream alternative of the late 2000s early 2010s i think it's funny because this phrasing implies like the depth and duration of the hazing at Samwell. Like it goes back at least, I guess, to 1969. And it implies that it goes back to the era when people called things like blank stock instead of blank a palooza, which I think is a, an interesting linguistic shift. Did she uh, necessarily have all of this thought out when she wrote it? I don't know. But in 1.4, the house, Shitty first mentions Hazapalooza. And he also mentions literally in that strip, he mentions as they're walking through the foyer of the house that they'll need to know the layout of the house naked, blindfolded, and bitch-ass shift-faced. So here we have a callback to that phrasing and Shitty basically says, you know, you're all naked, blindfolded, and bitch-ass shit-faced. So cycling back around to... Things from earlier in the comic. Do you think as Hazelpalooza continues, it'll ever eventually become like Hazella, Haze by Haze West, or is it kind of going to be stuck in a Hazelpalooza moment? Well, I believe when Biddy leads Hazelpalooza, it's called Haze by Haze West. Is it really? Yes. I completely forgot that. Well, incredible and a little stupid. So all the things I like best about Check, Please. Very good. You have a much better memory than I do of literally everything in the comic, I think, actually. Yeah, it's uh, it's 4.7, Haze by Haze West. Okay. Well, anyway, that was a pointless piece of research I asked you to do by implication, so thank you. Really, I, I like that. I think it, I think it, yeah, it does kind of like imply intent. This is exactly the kind of thing that Ngozi's really good at, right? Like these little memorable, brandable, essentially jokes that are obviously a little predictable, but also fun and silly. You know what's not fun and silly? Hazing, let's talk about it. What is it? Well, to your question of what is it, I will add the question, is it always bad or can there be like a good version of hazing? I think that it's hard to say 
Hazy, well, thanks for tuning in to check this, please. Um, Hazing serves a really particular purpose, right? Hazing serves a purpose to build strong social bonds, a sense of exclusivity within a particular small group, to build traditionally, if you're talking about the really violent and like horrible hazing, it builds like almost like a traumatic bond or like a trench mentality among the people who are being abused as part of this process. And it also creates a strong code of silence because oftentimes hazing is uh, is made of actions that induce shame in the people who are being hazed. And so that strong code of silence can be really important for whatever kind of group that you're in. For example, a frat, right? Like often I think there are sort of secrecy rules surrounding like what you do in the frat or whatever. And so this is a way to make sure that people are introduced to those things, feel like they are part of the group. At the end of the initiation ritual, you feel like you've been through this traumatic experience and you've bonded with the people in it. And you've also been conditioned in particular ways. I think you can get some of those effects, some of the good effects through some kind of initiation ritual of other kinds, but I don't know whether I would call that hazing. This is going to be a really dumb example maybe, but if you have ever worked at a place where they made you do corporate trust training, it's the same kind of idea. It's a way to build a certain kind of community or camaraderie and trust among particular members of people who, for whatever reason, have to have the same goal or the same values. It's a way of making sure that everyone understands each other, can communicate, and can adopt the values of whatever given company or group that you're joining. But what I call that hazing, or what I call initiation rituals that do not involve like fucking paddles or whatever, like what I call that hazing, I probably wouldn't. So I probably wouldn't call that hazing. I would probably call that some other kind of initiation because for me, hazing is synonymous with some kind of like inflicting difficulty or pain on the people you are doing it to. And this could be because of my experience. I went to, as I've said before, a large state institution for my undergrad degree, which had a very strong Greek life component and hazing including injuries and uh, hospitalizations were part of the yearly rituals of the campus. And so for me, those are very, very much intertwined. Yeah. So interestingly enough, the University of Michigan Dean of Students website has uh, several pages about hazing. One, they also have an email address, no-hazing at umich.edu. So feel free to do your own research. Having said that, um, they, they have basically a definition on their site. Hazing as defined in Garrett's Law, which is a Michigan state law, includes the following willful acts with or without the consent of the individual involved. Physical injury, assault or battery, kidnapping or imprisonment, physical activity that knowingly or recklessly subjects a person or persons to an unreasonable risk of physical harm or to severe mental or emotional harm, degradation, humiliation, or compromising of moral or religious values, forced consumption of any substance, placing an individual in physical danger, which includes abandonment and undue interference with academic endeavors. Acts of hazing only include those acts which are done for the purpose of pledging, being initiated to, affiliating with, participating in, holding office in, or maintaining membership in any organization. This includes, but is not limited to, any situation which creates a risk of injury to any individual or group, causes discomfort to any individual or group, causes embarrassment to any individual or group, involves harassment of any individual or group, involves degradation of any individual or group, involves humiliation of an individual or group, 
involves ridicule of an individual or group, includes or involves the willful destruction or removal of public or private property. Well, that's not really coming up here. Anyway, not to like read this whole web page, but you can probably start to figure out that much of what's happening in this particular strip is, yes, both. Sorry, I think that fox is back. Hold on. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I had to go control the wildlife situation in my life. Long story short, what's happening in this particular strip is, is definitely hazing. And as you can tell the way it's written here, a lot of this is really characterized as not good. So definitely we see kidnapping is happening. Actually, much of the blog post is about kidnapping up to and including like bagging or blindfolding the frogs and or Jack. There's also the sort of subjective quality of what is discomfort, what is embarrassment, what is harassment, what is degradation, what is ridicule, what is humiliation. I mean, to a certain extent, it's going to be based upon the perspective of the person who is being hazed. But in general, I would say that being forced to strip down to your underwear, bound on a hockey rink in front of a much larger group of clothed people who are making you do things like howl in unison and making fun of you pretty much falls into the category of degradation, humiliation. I guess it's up to you whether or not you're discomforted or embarrassed by that. But I mean, certainly it's an intent to like ridicule. So on the most basic level, it's like, yeah, the things that laws like Garrett's law are trying to prevent are the things that are happening in this particular strip. And the blog says they seem to be mostly incompetent at hazing. I find this very interesting because, no, they're not. They're literally doing it like a textbook definition of what hazing is. That's exactly what they're doing right here. They're pretty competent at it. I think this statement basically just serves to underscore the point that Samwell men's hockey is not toxic and they're not assholes like the real-life hockey players who do bad hazing. This is a sort of sanitized, watered-down version of that which happens in some pretty drastic real-life hazing situations. And as indicated by that long sort of law or, you know, synopsis of a law that I just read, because that's what you come to this podcast for, me reading laws, you know, like some sort of lawyer. People are like actually really harmed and sometimes killed by hazing. And I mean, that's not good. Yeah, like literally every year, multiple hazing deaths occur. And those are just the deaths which can be linked specifically with hazing because of an injury or alcohol poisoning, which very clearly relates to a given event. There are other injuries, deaths, etc., which may not be so easily linked to hazing, but which are linked to the overall culture that contributes to hazing. So it's 
really dangerous. I think 2020, there haven't been any recorded deaths thus far, which I'm assuming is because most people are not in frat houses right now. Although, get ready, everybody. They're about to be, or have already gone to, to their houses, and universities are not doing a very good job at taking uh, responsibility for that. So good job, everybody. But from the latter half of the 20th century, at least one person per year, and often more than one person per year, except apparently 1958, when for some reason no one died. But truly, from like 1953 to 2019, at least one person died per year, and often more than one person died per year, specifically because of deaths linked to hazing. Usually alcohol is involved, often physical injury as the result of beating or falls are involved. So it's like a really, really serious thing. And this, as we've discussed, I'm not going to kind of get into the, like, the gory details of exactly what can happen, but this is definitely a highly sanitized version of the kind of rituals that many people who are pledging into frats or pledging into other kind of community organizations at the college level have to go through. I mean, I'll get into it just so that people know what we're talking about. Famously... I think paddling is probably the most stereotypical activity that you'd see, like if somebody were, I don't know, making a cartoon about college students joining a frat, they'd probably show them like getting their asses beat. But, and just to be clear, that's like very painful. I mean, you know, some people seek that out, but it's still like physical harm. You're basically like whacking somebody in the but it hurts a lot. That's why people do it. That's actually kind of on the tamer end of the spectrum. When I was doing research for this episode, I came across things like making people drink 50 gallons of water and then doing like hundreds of push-ups and then drinking like another 50 gallons of water and then just cycling through water and push-ups and water and push-ups. And I think the person who did that ended up dying from, like, water poisoning, like water intoxication, which sounds fucking insane, but that's what was going on. Within hockey, there's a strong hazing culture. And I found, like, an article on, I don't know, Bleacher Report or some shit like that that was like, greatest hockey hazes of all time. And what was interesting about that to me was that it was super sanitized and it was like hockey teams like to haze rookies by having the vets invite them out to dinner and then leaving the rookies with the bill. And it's true that like, yeah, that, that is also hazing. But if you dig a little deeper in junior hockey, and especially in the Canadian Hockey League, and particularly in the Ontario Hockey League, the hazing culture is fucking insane. And I'm not going to get into everything I read about, but it are, it's incidents that are like making everybody on the bus on a roadie strip and then go into the bus bathroom together and like be driven around on a fucking tour bus like that. Akeem Alyu, who has come up um, a couple times on this podcast already because he's the person who most recently wrote a pretty stirring account of his experience in hockey on the Players' Tribune website. 
has a little bit at the very beginning of his piece where he says, if most people have heard of me, they've probably heard of me because of the like infamous hazing incident that I was connected to. And it was like months of sustained, both general and racially charged hatred that he has classified as like sociopathic. And if you somehow haven't read that piece yet, do read it because it talks about that incident, not in depth at all, but it does sort of root that as one of his earliest experiences in organized hockey as kind of like an emblematic moment for the way that he would be treated, albeit not as extreme, throughout the rest of his hockey career. And he talks very much about how he was different. One of his parents was Russian and one of his parents was Nigerian. And he didn't speak English, I think, when he started in the OHL. And he was really, really punished through hazing as a mechanism for being different. And I think this happens to a lot of people and it's really fucking serious. And it involves all sorts of things that I would never want to happen to me. Being forced to consume different substances was on that list. It's not just alcohol, it's all kinds of stuff. Sexual harassment, also sexual assault. So we're seeing a very, very sanitized version of it here in keeping with a lot of what we've seen in this comic so far where it's taking something that very much does happen in hockey and kind of giving it like a, I don't know, like a less weighty iteration so that you think like, oh, they're preserving the things that are nice about hockey without any of the mean stuff. So let's break that down. Yeah, I do want to note in my experience anecdotally of talking to people about hazing, I've talked to both people in frats and sororities about this and oftentimes sorority and frat hazing will be intertwined so that various members of sister or brother organizations haze each other in really troubling ways. And we're going to kind of get into the homosocial elements of this particular strip. But hazing, I would say, very frequently has a sexual element to it, in addition to like a pretty brutal physical element. Like often these things are intertwined in various ways. And... The extreme violence of hazing is in part, I think, a way to take the sexual nature, which is not, again, about sex, obviously, it's about power, but it's a way to take it and make it heterosexual in a particular way, if that makes any sense at all. I don't know how to talk about this in a way that is particularly like nuanced, but this is just something I have anecdotally heard and noticed from talking to people who are like in frats, which I don't really do anymore, but I did when I was an undergrad. And it's like a very elaborate and violent no homo, basically. This is what uh, I talked about to people, you know, 10 years ago. I don't know what this culture is like now. I assume it's very similar. There have been various attempts over the past 20 years, particularly informed by various people's deaths or near deaths, to crack down on hazing. This is why you see the kind of law that like the law that Secret read in Michigan. But I just want to note that I think it's a really important thing to at least try to talk about, even if I can't talk about it that well or in that nuanced a way, because this strip and Check Please in general 
is really engaging with sexuality and its incorporation into these toxic quote unquote or very obviously toxic spaces. And I think it's important to point out that even though frats are obviously very concerned with homosocial relations until very recently, and probably I would assume still in many frats, there's no tolerance for sexual difference. So I just want to make that point that like part of the argument that this is making is about making space for different people in these traditions. And and I think it's really complicated because well, we'll get into whether or not we should be making space in those traditions, but in real life, how much space is actually being made, it, you know, it depends on where you are and what kind of organization you're talking about. But for the most part, hazing is not a safe place to be different. That's all. I think that, yes, there probably is like an okay version of hazing. For example, the thing about like leaving the rookies with the tab for dinner. Okay, fine. I mean, we're all talking about like very well-paid hockey players. You're not putting anybody in a dangerous situation. It's basically like a gotcha. So, okay, fine. I'm sure there's other things you could come up with if you sat down and figured out like what's a list of not inherently harmful, but still kind of putting somebody on the spot activities that could constitute like a better version of hazing. Having said that, however, there is the fact that what hazing is, is intrinsically linked to what hockey is, what group sports are. And even if you're going to do it, you know, in a safe, fun, healthy, consensual way or whatever, safe, sane, and I don't remember what the third one is. I think it's safe, sane, and consensual. Eh, I mean, isn't sanity and safety implying the consent? Uh, yeah. No time. No time for this. Um, yeah. I mean, even if you're doing some sort of like safe, sane, consensual version of hazing, it's still happening for particular like psychosocial reasons. And I think it's important to like be aware of like why and what's happening. And my guess is most hockey players, even when they're suffering under this system, probably aren't thinking about the why too deeply because it would undo everything about like what they built their lives around. So effectively what hazing does is it strips participants of their agency or their individuality. Like it really makes you part of a team. And I think somebody who was talking about why hazing is a good thing for people joining a hockey team or a frat or whatever might say, well, it's a team building exercise. And it's like, yeah, it's a team building exercise. It makes you part of the team by destroying your sense of self to a certain extent. Um, it also basically conditions compliance with the group and with norms within the group. So again, if you're different in any way, this is a process that is supposed to bring you into line with the group norms of hockey. And I want to point out too that this is a logical extension of the sport, which demands, as we've discussed before, right? Sports and contact sports particularly demand that you ignore pain and suffering. They demand you to train yourself out of your natural protective instincts and to channel those instincts instead into pursuing sacrificing the body for the team or whatever. 
this is another kind of sacrifice that you might make for your team, right? Like anything about you that makes you individual, unique, autonomous, you carefully remove it. And hazing is part of the process to help you do that. It also, because it's a trust building exercise, which right, it is like, if you go through something, I don't know if you guys have ever had a, um, a really, really, really bad job, but if you've ever had a really, really, really bad job, you know that the bonds that you build with coworkers in this like horrible experience are particularly strong because you're in a coercive situation that you have to go to and you find ways to make human connection in the face of that difficulty. And you also become part of a team where you are sacrificing what makes you individually special in order to like serve the needs of the other people who are in this traumatic situation with you. So I would classify that as very similar to being on a sports team that has this kind of culture. The sport itself demands you ignore your needs. And then you also have to follow the orders from your captain, your coaches, et cetera. So hazing also serves to create a very distinct hierarchy, which you can internalize in particular ways and which might ultimately help on the ice, I guess. I think your use of the word coercive here is kind of key to understanding what's the problem with putting a good version of hazing into the Sam Wellman's hockey context. In theory, just based on what we know and what we see about these characters and the way this team works through the duration of the comic, I do believe that if one of these frogs went to, I don't know, shitty, bitty somebody and was just basically like, I don't want to do this, I don't want to participate in this, nobody would like beat them into doing it. They would probably be able to just sit it out or whatever. The coercive element specifically is the social pressure and the social conditioning that would keep somebody from recognizing that they're able to exercise their autonomy to choose whether or not to participate. I think even if, say, somebody like the captain, not that the specific captain of the specific team seems like the kind of guy who would do this, said something like, if anybody wants to opt out of hazing, it's optional, let me know. I think it's very unlikely that anybody would actually take him up on that, whether or not they wanted to participate in hazing anyway. Because of course, there's a sort of fear of missing out, you know, FOMO, but that's a real thing. And nobody wants to be the person who looks like they didn't have enough integrity and enough team spirit to sit through hazing. And again, the whole point of this is that you don't want to appear different. So you don't want to be the person who marks herself as different by saying, I'm opting out of this. So the way in which like a you know, progressive or a more liberal version of this particular ritual works is textually maybe an improvement, but like, I don't know, I would seriously doubt that it would be easy, even under those conditions, for somebody to gracefully opt out of participating in this. Which brings me to Biddy's very chewy misunderstanding of the point of this exercise. So again, I go back to what Ngozi wrote in the blog. They seem to be mostly incompetent at hazing. That's the bold part. 
But the not bold part, the kind of response in the like call and response format of the blog is in his senior thesis for the women's gender and sexuality studies major, she will in fact note that, quote, when the strictly homosocial and masculine environment of the initiation ritual is even slightly subverted, homemade pies can appear. So the idea with this reiterates something that we've been saying a lot on this podcast, which is that it seems as though the comic is asserting that the mere presence of somebody like Biddy in something like this is itself a subversion. But again, Biddy is not questioning the system of hazing, and neither is the comic. So I guess the question is sort of like, is it fucked up? Or is it radical for this comic to suggest that because a guy is obviously gay, his presence subverts masculinity? That was your point, but I was just reading off our outline, so I kept going. I mean, I think you read it better than I would have. Uh, I mean, I don't know even if this is the best way to frame this question, right? But we've, we've run into this again and again, where Biddy's difference from the others on the team is itself enough to subvert the toxic path of systemic power. And I don't know, like, obviously, we're supposed to read this as a radical departure from toxic masculinity. Oh, well, maybe not radical, but certainly as a departure. But I don't know, what do you think? Is it fucked up? Is it radical? Is it neither? Is it something else? Well, first of all, I think it's a really good question. Like, I find this question really interesting. I mean, to a certain extent, if you're positing that the presence of somebody like Biddy in a moment like this is jarring and bizarre, then you're perpetuating the idea that the presence of somebody like Biddy in a moment like this is like bizarre and he doesn't really belong there. Like the comic is showing Biddy not fitting into this moment. And obviously it's like, again, the nice version of a college hockey team. So what Shitty says in response to Biddy being like, you can only pick sweater or pie, ha ha ha, isn't like, shut the fuck up, you little F word, and then throwing him across the ice. It's just like exasperation with the fact that he's fucking this up. And also maybe it's worth noting here that like, they seem not to get the sweaters or the pie. Just the fact that he's like, oh, let's make this hazing situation slightly less shitty by murdering shitty (laughs) no he doesn't change anything just the fact that he's there doesn't change what's happening it just makes it like a little awkward for 30 seconds and i think to a certain extent what the comic is kind of doing is pointing out that like if a gay guy were at this hazing ritual with pie it would make things kind of awkward Then again, Ollie and Wiki seem not to be making things awkward. They're just standing in the corner, acknowledged by no one. Jack's not making things awkward either. He's right along with the ride. I have some things to say about Jack's involvement in this situation. All right. So I guess what I'm trying to figure out, and, and and I don't know the answer, right? Like, it's one of those things that I'm going back and forth on, and I don't know where I'll settle. I guess what this is pointing to is that Biddy's difference is something essential about him. Now, I guess now that we know that Ollie and Wicks are not just fist-bumping bros, but are in fact in love and bumping a little more than fists, now that we know that... I would call them fist-bumping sex bros. So, right, now that we understand that their relationship is a little more beneficial than we thought, um, or whatever, this complicates this 
But certainly at this point, we don't know that Jack is queer. We don't know that Ollie and Wiki are queer. We only know that Biddy is queer. Uh, we might suspect that Jack is queer because Ngozi keeps telling us that he and Biddy are going to kiss, but we don't actually know in the comic itself, right? So what this points to is that there is something essentially different about Biddy and that the presence of this essential difference is itself enough to change the course a little bit, not fully, not to dismantle the system, but to adjust the system to a slightly better version of itself, a slightly better and more awkward version of itself. And I guess then it's sort of a philosophical question. Like, is, is queerness an essential difference? Is that essential difference enough in and of itself to change and make awkward or make something like Hazing slightly question its own motives? Actually, I guess what he's doing, I'm really figuring this out as I speak, so thank you. But I guess what he's doing by offering pie and sweaters is an opportunity for everyone to reject it and to like double down on uh, this like fun hazing as an appropriate activity because Shitty's exasperated and the dudes being hazed don't take Biddy up on his offer. And so what they're actually doing is rejecting this alternate path. They're actually just like, no, we don't want this essential difference of queerness and we're going to double down on like the toxic heterosexual norms of hazing or something, right? This is like, not how I think you're supposed to read this at all. But as I sort of examine what is going on, that's the reading I'm coming up with. And I, is queerness an essential difference? Like, I don't know. That certainly seems to go against the current spectrum model of sexuality, but perhaps it could be seen that way as well. It depends who you ask and when and why. But I do think there's something like a bit troubling about the way that this is manifested in this strip. So a couple things here. The first is, I think it is false to imply that there are two types of men, straight men and queer men, and straight masculinity is bad and toxic, and queer masculinity is a subversion of the toxic things about straight masculinity. Sometimes that can be true, but a lot of the time it's not, especially for white gay men, possibly thin blonde ones from the South. You know, we don't see anything about Biddy in this comic that implies that he's particularly awful, but just because he is gay does not negate these other facts of his identity. And yeah, I mean, he's a man. He's like a white, conventionally attractive man from an upper middle class household. He's going to probably, in a lot of ways, share many of the attributes that make, say, the more normative straight bros on the hockey team crappy in the ways that they're crappy, if that makes sense. So to your point about, is it radical to suggest that because a guy is obviously gay, he ergo subverts masculinity or toxic masculinity? I don't know if it's radical, but I think it is wrong. I think it's possible, but it's not going to be true in every circumstance, certainly. And this kind of raises my second point, which is Benny becomes the captain of the hockey team and leads hazing himself. And he does give people sweaters and pie, but he also, if anything, is more completist and more severe in his hazing, 
or at least not any less so. So again, we're seeing that Biddy has basically, you know, learned to embrace and perfect and enhance the system rather than merely because he's in it, subverting it or changing it. Oh yeah, and and by like for the record, although I'm still debating my own well, I'm kind of coming down on the side of like, no, it's not radical and actually this sucks, but uh, but I'm still sort of debating like certain elements of this. I don't think that Biddy being queer is at all either <laughs> like meant to probably, but certainly does not somehow erase the other aspects of his identity. I think that the comic is to some extent making the argument that it does. And I think this is where Oh, I don't know how to talk about this either. But I think this is where sometimes like the intent of the narrative or of the author can matter. Like, is this a way to reclaim queerness? Is this a way, not that queerness necessarily needs to be reclaimed, but is this a way to, is this another framework through which we can like redeem queerness? Well, then that asks the question, why does queerness need to be redeemed? So I guess I'm just in this weird place where I see how you can make the argument and I see why this might feel really radical to some people. And I understand, I think, the the steps that you could take to get there. But the more that I'm mulling this over, the more that I'm like, well, I don't like that, actually. So I think I'm coming down on the side of, uh, no, it's not radical, everybody. Thank you. Well, but okay, not to play devil's advocate against a case that I also just argued, but I mean, it is still true that like there are no openly gay men in the NHL. To my knowledge, there never have been, like not even people who have come out after the fact. And although there have been a handful, maybe like a few openly gay players in junior hockey, still, it's like a few. So to a certain extent, well, it, it kind of is radical by definition. If if there's only one, then yeah, I mean, I, I guess so. Well, but what's the value of that, I guess, becomes the question. Yeah. And then there's also the, the difference between a real person, again, which Biddy is not, and then a narrative, which is like a series of decisions. So you've got in real life, what it would mean for an NHL player to be openly gay, an important member of a, of a hockey team in a college to be openly gay, whatever. That's one thing because that is a real person with like real decision and agency in a life and like all the things that people have versus a series of narrative conventions and a series of narrative assumptions, which is obviously what Biddy is. And that's where I struggle with radical or like if the point of this narrative is to deconstruct toxic masculinity of hockey, does Biddy's mere presence do that? Like if that's what we're meant to take from it, is that actually happening? And, you know, again, we've discussed this before, like, no, not really, because these rites and rituals and traditions aren't being dismantled, they're just being shifted um, for all the reasons that that secret just, just, just went through, so I will not go through again. Not to dig too much into this, but I was sitting here sort of thinking about, I guess it's also not just that Biddy is gay, but the fact that he's sort of effeminate, that he's obviously gay. Like, if nothing else, Jack and Ollie and Wix and, you know, Max... 
none of them are sticking out in any way because they don't have the same sort of aesthetic or the same sort of affect that Biddy does. Right. But then, but then what argument is that making about what it means to be visibly gay? That it's essentially an inherently valuable or that by presenting in a different way than other people on your team or whatever, you, that's the same problem, right? Because even like it's both a really interesting way of claiming the value of doing that and claiming value for people who are visibly different from the people around them. And it's at the same way, this way of attaching responsibility to that and and attaching a kind of like inherent, I don't know, as I'm saying this, I'm starting to think about how this also works for like other kinds of visible difference and particularly conversations that I've had with friends about particularly blackness, which I do not feel able to speak to because I am not a black person, but I'm noticing as we're talking this parallel between this conversation and then other conversations I've had with other people about sort of like visible markers of difference, including race and how those can operate in various spaces. Uh, but I can't speak too much to that other than acknowledging that I've had those conversations. Back to Biddy, it's like either there's this inherent value to being visibly different or there's this like inherent responsibility being visibly different, which is, which is then unfair. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, and, and I, I would cycle back to that um, Akeem Alu piece, or indeed, you know, several accounts that have come out over the past, like, you know, three to five years about what it's like to be Black in hockey that can maybe speak to that perspective more closely. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I mainly am just wondering if the author and or the text aren't more concerned about how Biddy seems rather than what he is in cases like this. But then I also think it, you know, does get into what it means that, say, Jack is a queer man playing hockey, and there are a couple of other queer guys playing hockey, and some of them face similar issues. So I'm not sure where the comic wants to be on this. But what I do think is true is that it seems like both Biddy and the comic apparently want like some better version of hazing. I guess that means you get to eat pie. But again, the comic, neither here nor at the end of the comic, seems to be taking issue with the fact that hazing is like this because like this is what the system has produced. And indeed, hazing is the mechanism through which people are like conditioned to fit into the system. So it's a cycle like that where like hazing makes the system, but then the system produces hazing. So it's this just like endless cycle, you know? And yeah, I mean, I think that's basically like where we get into trouble with this comic and why this comic is a confusing text, especially as sort of like a, a stated political work about how hockey can be better and more inclusive because it's basically saying like you can take this act this ritual that is a product of an exclusionary bigoted discriminatory system and just inherently remove those elements from it and then it's okay but the purpose of the hazing is still effectively trying to condition everybody to fit into the hockey team 
Like, that's the point of the hazing. And again, I think maybe, I don't know, it must have been four hours ago now. I did say that I think there is some version of hazing that is probably, like, okay to do. But even if you're doing it, you know, you're you're making the rookies pick up your Big Macs or whatever. There's a cat biting my arm. <clears throat> even if that's, like, the version of hazing that you're enacting probably the only way to do it is with like a, a full comprehension of what the purpose of it is and why it's happening and how it's never going to be a, a perfectly clean experience because it's rooted in something that is itself meant to shape people for a system. Yeah, definitely. And the teacher in me wonders then does hazing do something that other kinds of team building doesn't do? Like what does hazing do that's unique that isn't just perpetuating systems of power? How does it build a team in a uniquely effective way? And I feel like the answer is it doesn't, it's entirely about power. At which point, you know, you'd have to question then why are we continuing to perpetuate this, this thing? But these are the kinds of questions, like we've said this over and over again, Check Please is interested in redeeming tradition, not in dismantling tradition. So this is not the kind of question that Check Please is going to ask. Check Please is interested in how do we take the systems that exist and make them better while maintaining the overall structure that's already there. And these are questions that are important to ask, but they're also questions that have limits in their answers. I'd also like to say that I think that Biddy comes off as like especially stupid in this strip. Like, very unable to read the room. Just genuinely something about how he's written here. He just, he just really seems like an idiot. And I wrote on the outline, I truly believe Biddy is not this stupid. You said, but it's canon. You know, it's canon that he's this stupid. But then it's also like, I don't know, maybe Biddy knows what's up and this is his big plan to subvert it all. Saving masculinity one pie at a time. The pie has semen in it. No, I'm sorry. Masculinity is not associated with semen. That's fucked up. Uh, kind of is. Uh, I, but it is associated with hazing. Yes, yes. And hazing is associated with semen sometimes. Anyway, this is horrible. I'm so sorry that I've gone down this path. Let's back up. Let's back up. Well, you want to know what? Now that we're on to semen, let's talk about Jack. All right, lay it on me. Two things about Jack here. Number one, Dex looks at him and says, your ass is shockingly large like it is scary and scary is both bold and italic so we said a lot of things about jack's butt especially in the episode that was about butts because we had to read a comic that was about butts where like jack's butt is often not drawn like it's that large but like look Canonically, it's supposed to be large. It's supposed to be very shockingly large, scary. So just think about that. People sometimes say that this is like proof that Dex is gay or that he's like into Jack or something like that. Fun fact, I guess it's not that fun. It is a fact though. I saw a post about this like literally today, like in the last 24 hours. So this is certainly, certainly a, a theory that's circuiting around. What do you think? I don't think it's necessarily gay uh, or that it has anything to do with attraction. I think that it could be. And if you want to use it as part of your personal dex sexuality, you know, yeah, make the case. Totally. 
But I don't think it has to be. I think that especially in sports teams, the way that people talk about each other's bodies is often weirdly sexual and that doesn't necessarily actually indicate attraction or like especially in hockey because the butt is like a part of the body which you actually need to work on because it helps you with explosive movements like that's what your that's what your gluteus is for it like pushes you forward and having well-developed muscles in that area of the body helps you with like particular hockey things like i think it's pretty normal to discuss both parts of other people's bodies and how they achieved those results and how perhaps you could achieve a similar result. I mean, I think this is like pretty normalized. Now, have I ever been in an all men's locker room, you know, for any kind of team sport, never mind a professional sport? No, because I'm not a man. But I certainly have seen movies where they're represented and I've and I've read, you know, accounts or whatever of, of kind of some of the way that people talk to each other and interact with each other and I've like seen hockey players on the ice touch each other's butts just because. And so there's also this, speaking of homosocial interaction, there's also this pattern of, of weirdly non-sexual sexual interaction, like, you know, snapping a towel in someone's ass, touching their butt, clutching someone's head because you've just scored a really good goal and you just like have to hug your buddy because that's like what you've got to do and you tenderly like cradle their face or whatever. These are all things that happen like on a pretty regular basis. And so I think that this could absolutely be read as evidence of attraction, but it is also just part of how people on sports teams talk to each other about their bodies. And so, like, not necessarily. He doesn't say it in a particularly, like, sexual way. Scary, unless, you know, I mean, I guess you could read whatever you want to text the sexuality, but scary is not always a word I associate with sexual attraction. So, you know, I, I take it or leave it. Same, although, yeah, I guess I do in regard to this comic. Yeah, I mean, I think the argument is that it's, Dex has been looking at Jack's butt, and you would only look at another man's butt if you were gay. I would make the argument that like probably a, a gay person, at least a closeted gay person, probably wouldn't make a comment like this. I have a couple thoughts about that. A, it's fanfic. Do whatever you want. Don't listen to me. Write whatever you want. You don't have to pay attention to my opinion about sex and sexuality. Oh, oh yeah. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that like head cannons or fanfics or whatever about Dex are bad and wrong. I'm just trying to like read the text. Yeah, totally. B, in my experience, I had many years as a closeted person and uh, you don't, in my experience as a closeted person, say anything that anyone could read as gay because like that's the opposite of the point of being closeted. That's my experience. It is limited. My perspective is limited, but that is what I would say. C, I have been in changing rooms for sports teams and you look at other people's butts just because they're like in your way. Yes, you're going to see other people's bodies because you're changing and you're moving around and you're getting ready for stuff and you're just going to like see other people's bodies. You can't do anything about it. So if Dex like glanced at Jack's butt and then was like, oh my God, like that could absolutely happen outside of the context of, uh, of being sexually attracted to Jack. Something that is true is that chiefly heterosexual men in hockey, comment on other men's physical attributes all the fucking time. They sure that's do. That's part of, yeah, that's part of what the thing on the blog post about 
shitty talking about homosociality of hockey is is sort of very distantly pulling on the fact that it's very not uncommon to see hockey commentators or whoever you know talking about men's bodies basically like they're meat you know that's a big boy like you know look at the blank on that guy like that kind of stuff so if Dex has spent a lot of time in hockey Talking about other men's body parts is probably fairly normalized for him. But I also feel like were he actually into guys and actually in the closet, it's unlikely that he would want to volunteer this information. I wrote a little in that post that I've referred to now a couple of times about uh, the primary point of the question was about Lardo. But um, yeah, there, there is stuff in the back of Huddle One where Shitty and Jack in a little thicklet are like, I don't know, having a conversation. And the gist of the conversation is that Shitty is like, you're very attractive and your body is very beautiful. And Jack is like nervously kind of saying to Shitty, oh, it's, it's gay to comment on another man's body. And Shitty is like, well, sometimes at Samwell, men comment on other men's bodies and they don't even say no homo. And it's like, yeah, I think it's not a coincidence that Shitty, as a straight male character, is the character who has license to, like, make these comments. Whereas Jack, who actually is attracted to other men's bodies, is basically like, what what are you talking about? Uh, uh, I've never looked at another man's body. (laughs) Think about it. I wanted to add a little bit more to that. We've talked before about how the assumption of straightness is what allows homosociality, essentially, like the assumption that everyone here is straight and not attracted to other dudes is what allows this kind of discussion about men's bodies. Because as soon as it becomes about actual sexual attraction, it becomes dangerous because of all the problematic associations with like queer sexuality. I will say, and there may have been fic written about this, I haven't read that much Dex fic. Although I'm on the lookout for good lobster fic. So anytime you want to write about lobster, you let me know and I'll come read it right away. But I do think there's a really good argument potentially to be made here, not to get too into my own sort of history. But for me, there was also a long period where I didn't think of myself as queer and did not, would not have told anyone that I was queer, kind of suspected, but also didn't know at the same time. It was like a weird, you know, one of those things where you both know and don't know something. And I absolutely think that if Dex is in a position where he doesn't think of himself as queer, but has noticed Jack in a queer way and the way that he can channel that experience is through the language of hockey. Like that would be a great fic. And I totally think that that could be what's happening here. But once you kind of like point to closeting in the sense of someone being aware of their identity and hiding it rather than not being aware of their identity and not knowing how to articulate what's happening with them or being able to identify it within a queer spectrum of sexuality, like once you have them aware and hiding it, it seems much less likely that this kind of thing would be said. Doesn't mean it wouldn't be said, he's drunk or whatever, like, yeah, sure. But yeah, so I think you could read it in multiple ways. I don't think in, inherently this is necessarily like, yes, hashtag confirmed, both Holster and Dex are gay, right? No. I also think people like to read this comment in 
dialogue with his earlier comment in year one when we meet him about how he thought that Biddy, the gay bigger, wouldn't be on the hockey team because Jack Zimmerman went there. But I think there's nothing following this particular comment or really even potentially any substantial interactions between Dex and Jack at all. So I, I think they're, you know, I encourage people to write, think about, draw, whatever they want to. So please do not take this as like a Dex is gay, shut down, not okay, just, or like anything like that. It's just trying to think through why what's in the text is what's in the text, I guess. Please, by all means, bring me your gay Dex headcanons, especially if he won the Man Booker Prize recently. Dex? Very, very, very large butt aside. The thing that I think everyone in this fandom has slept on is that Jack has huge tits. He has like big oblong nipples, <laughs> just like huge packs. And also in Huddle One, there is a drawing of Biddy just like groping and or maybe like slapping Jack's chest. And Jack is just like, ugh. So, you know, if you have Hell One, go back and look at that. Yeah, he's got big boobs. I like it. The only thing I have to point out here beyond, uh uh-huh, is that Jack here is, what, 23 or 24? So he's actually, like, quite a bit older than everybody else in the picture. And so that's also part of why, right? Like, his body is more developed because he's older. Hormonally, physically, he's had more time and more ability to pack on muscle than the other people in around him. That's right, everybody. We're not like getting real into this here, but uh, Jack's like 24 and looking tolerantly as Dex is like, you should have gone first in the draft. And uh, you know, write me fic about that. He's got like a little flirtatious quirk to his eyebrow. Tell me what happens. Oh yeah, I didn't even comment on Jack's reaction, which is sort of like, huh. <laughs> Like, he knows he has a big butt. Like, he doesn't not know it. He looks sort of, like, tolerantly... I don't know how to... Like, I. the only way I know how to describe this particular look, which is with one eyebrow quirked and a smile and sort of, like, a tolerant, like, uh-huh, acceptance on his face is truly flirtatious. This is, like, to me, coded as flirtatious... I see, when I see someone with this face in check, please, or elsewhere, I would be like, ah, that's someone being flirtatious. Like, I don't know how else to read this facial expression. I guess maybe, like, amused and flattered and thinking that Dex is funny, but, like, that kind of all is also flirtatious, so I don't know how to read it. I think Dex seems upset, and, yeah, Jack seems like he he might be, like, a a little into it. (laughs) Yeah, you're, you're right. You're right about his body. It's also, I mean, we don't have any information about what he was doing for the two years and change in between the end of his junior hockey career and his matriculation at Samwell. But he has been playing professional level hockey for many, many years. So he's probably already got the benefit of a lot of what these other guys are going to learn about how to like bulk up and like, you know, obviously he seems pretty dehydrated, (laughs) 
but I'm sure that's just because of, you know, all of the, all of the hazing. He's only a fifth as drunk as, as Max, so maybe he's, maybe he's kind of into it. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, guys. I just feel like there should be more fix that are basically like, I don't know, like tit play. I, I don't know what to call it. There's just like nothing about this in the fandom. So it's just, it constantly surprises me how little Jack's body is like fetishized in Check Please fanfic. That's because, no, this is mean. I'm not going to say it. Well, say it to me and then you can edit it out or bleep it. That's because Checkley's fanfic obviously is also deconstructing the toxic female gaze so common in other fandoms where men's bodies are treated, you know, only for the pleasure that they give straight women and fetishized gay men. We don't fetishize in Checkley's. We just write endless fucking therapy conversations and kink negotiation where Jack says, green, pinch that nipple, please. Yellow. Oh, okay, I'll slow down, hun. I suppose all I'd say about that is, number one, not everybody in this fandom is female. And number two... Oh, yeah. I mean, I obviously don't actually think any of that. I, I, I know. I know. I have, I have seen people basically make posts that are like, it's so disgusting how everybody in Check Please fandom just like fetishizes Jack and Biddy and like sexualizes them. And it's just like, have you, have you looked at these characters? Jack hasn't been hazed before, so why not, I guess? Kitten? It's your Uncle Tomato. What a bad and horrible boy. All right, anyway. Truly, truly. Well, the um, same can be said of the following. <laughs> So we are talking about why hasn't Jack hazed and why is he being hazed now? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so the blog post has this thing about Jack elbowed Shitty and laughed about how he was so glad he never had to do any of this. Shitty stared for a very long time at his friend Jack Zimmerman before whispering, You fucker. You beautiful fucker. Surely Shitty would know this, correct? Like, they would have been hazed the same year. You right? would that. I have some suggestions. A, yes, obviously Shitty would know this, but discount it because nothing makes sense here in Check Please Land, so don't worry about it. B, Haza Palooza or whatever it was, you know, Hazella. I don't know the name of any other. Hazingland Music Conservatory Festival for Classical Musicians or whatever. Like, Hayes Fork. Hayes Fork, whatever. Obviously, uh, the year that this was happening, they never took the blindfolds off and stayed disoriented and drunk the whole time, so Shitty wouldn't have known. Hazaru. Thirdly, yes, Hazaru, exactly. Thirdly, Jack and Shitty are supposed to be best friends, but I think this is actually like the third time we've seen them talk, so they just never got around to it because they just never actually talk. Well, again, they're not really talking. Like, I guess they're acknowledging that they're in the room with each other. And by room, I mean rank, which is more than happened in year one. Right. But it's not like they're having a conversation. Exactly. So if this is what it means to be a best friend of somebody, you vaguely acknowledge that they're in the same room while they tie you up and yell at you, then uh, wow. And uh, it makes sense that they never got the chance to discuss their year of being hazed because, uh, you know, they were too busy refusing to spend any time together or acknowledge each other. I guess my question is, since Jack like could and apparently did refuse to participate before this year, is Hazing opt-in at Samwell? I mean, we already kind of talked about this, so I don't have to go too into it, but I guess my follow-up questions would be like, is it actually opt-in or is the sort of psychosocial pressure going to prevent people from actually opting out? 
what would the social impact be of your fusing if you're not, say, bad Bob Zimmerman's son? Like, is this, do you, I wonder, do you think it was because of the drinking? Do you think that's why he opted out when he first got to Samwell? I think maybe it's because of the drinking. I also think, I mean, look, it's possible he was actually out of town. Like, you know, maybe. I mean, mostly it's just to demonstrate that Jack didn't used to be part of the team, even though he was the captain of the team. Well, I guess he wouldn't have been captain freshman year. But then he gave that speech, you know, to a joint session of Congress. And then he learned about how he needed to be part of the team. So now he's part of the team and he's doing hazing because he didn't do it before, which was individualistic and wrong. So I guess Check Please is now doing this thing. Anytime I read an experimental text or even a non-experimental text that I just don't understand, and I've decided that whatever it is makes sense as long as I think through emotion rather than through things like logic or sense. The way that I describe this to myself is, ah, it's operating in the realm of the metaphorical. So I guess, really, Jack's hazing is operating in the realm of the metaphorical or perhaps metaphysical. And uh, we don't have to worry about why. We just know that now he's part of the team and he's emotionally bonded with these frogs he never talks to again. And uh, that's all that really matters. Now it's time for the orgy. He talks to Chowder one time after this, I guess. I like that he giggles. Oh, I love that he giggles. I actually got so much joy out of this because I felt like this is the most personality we've ever seen from Jack and maybe we'll ever see from Jack with a couple of other exceptions. To be fair, I think that all of that time that he was a yelling asshole, he had a lot of personality. It's just that it wasn't, you know, giggly. He was yelling. It was a little one note. It was just like, he's a yelling asshole, right? Now he has two notes, yelling asshole and giggle. Well, if you love those two notes, you're going to go crazy for year four when he has no notes. I love that he giggles and I think it's cute. So he seems to be enjoying this and he's also like kind of snarky. Very hard based on my predilections. Not to think about the fact that he's enjoying being mostly naked and tied up in front of a group of men and not just think like, okay, well, um, I'd like to say that what you wrote on the outline was Jack said subrights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did in all but in all the words. Yes, he's he's snarky. I mean, I feel like I he's kind of like generally snarky throughout the comic. Like he makes little comments that Biddy reports on his Twitter about like you know, oh, what you know, are you going to tweet your essay or you know, oh, I can see that you're you know getting to bed before a big game or whatever. He's just a little, he's, he's a bitch. He's just a little bitch, Tomato. It's, it's really nice. Big titted, snarky bitch. I feel like I've been given a new lease on Jack, to be completely honest with you, because as we'll get to in year four, Jack doesn't say or feel anything. He's a cardboard cut out of a man. And that's been informing my fanfic writing for a long time because year four lasted for like three fucking years or whatever. So I don't actually remember how long it took to update year four. Sorry if that was an exaggeration. But I feel like I've been given a new lease on Jack. I'm starting to remember why I loved him as a character. He's this, as you said, bitchy, snarky, kind of funny guy 
who might be quiet, but actually does have opinions and feelings. And uh, I'm really excited to be reacquainted with this version of Jack because I had forgotten all about him. I had really spent a long time with a Jack who's just slowly and miserably dripping into a pile of opioids as his marriage dissolves. So I'm excited to be reacquainted with a Jack who like feels happiness. So as long as we're reading through, I think it's worth noting that um, Lardo makes a comment that she got initiated, you know, because she's like the big bro. So obviously she would. Again, this is the comic kind of telling us and not showing us that Lardo is actually part of this organization or has relationships or involvement with anything that's going on here. Is this the first thing she says all year? I'll check. I think it might be. Give me a sec. She said something in dibs. She said something in dibs. She's not in Moved In or Square One or This Hockey Shit or Meet the Frogs. So this is not only the first thing she said, this is her first appearance. Well, just, you know, thinking about it. Thinking about how she's part of the comic. Wouldn't it be nice if we got to see Lardo do anything? I think it would be really hard to show Lardo being hazed because gender dynamic-wise, not great if a group of men make a woman strip down and, like, kneel on the ice in front of them. Agreed. But I would make the following points. Number one, she was hazed the year before Biddy was at Samwell. So he wouldn't have been there to see it. And number two, cool that you mentioned that because in year four, Biddy makes Ford go through hazing. Oh, that's right. Well, I guess we'll explore that when we get there. You're right that we wouldn't have seen Lardo because Biddy wasn't there to act as our eyes, but it would have been cool if we saw her do anything. So, you know, whatever. Well, I think it it sticks with a lot of what we said about Lardo up to this point, which is that it's her character is being built around the idea that she does all of these things that are against type, but they're all things that you could never palatably show a woman actually doing or experiencing. And all of the attributes of her character are informed rather than demonstrated. And it's also really hard to like... I mean, again, this is something where it's like, she's in so many paratechs, she's in so many extras, she's brought up over and over again. And we do see her more after this, like I think she's in the next strip as well. So obviously this is a trend that, you know, she she gets more screen time after this. But within the comic, she's not well integrated, at least not up to this point. So, yeah, this is something that I continue to just be, like, not surprised by, but, like, kind of surprised by. That, like, I think of this woman as being, like, one-sixth of, like, a solid friend group, and yet I haven't seen her yet for several weeks in our reading of this comic. So, okay, whatever. To add briefly, one paratextual thing that happens for the first time in this blog post is that there's a little extra comic at the top of the blog post, and it's Chowder carrying Lardo. He says, by next year's Hazapalooza, I hope I'm as cool as you, Lardo. And she says, no talking, as he carries her to like wherever she wants to go. I think this is both cute and it is also troubling because uh, it's hazing, but you know, no, it's fine. And I think that this is both a nice moment of interaction of Lardo. It's something that I'll, that like I personally come to really enjoy about the blog posts are these little paratextual elements, these little comics outside of the main strip. And I do think there's something interesting in the fact that even though we haven't seen Lardo, like we both clearly do think of her as this very integral figure. So clearly something was done in an effective way to make Lardo 
in our minds as this important character, even if it's not in the sort of smallest concentric circle of canon, i.e. the, the comic strip. That said, yeah, it would have been nice to see more of her, but I do like this little extra blog. It's not the first time we get one of those comics on a blog post. It happens increasingly from here, I think. Yeah, there was one, there was one in Moved In. There was one in the strip where Jack ran out of the restaurant with Holster saying Jack's burrito is getting cold or whatever. I think it took a few, like a dozen or so strips to kind of like codify the format that we're familiar with, where it's a little like one panel gag or sort of like extra info comic. I think it's getting like solidified around now. Let's take a step into Kellic land. We have a lot to say about not only Kellic land in general, but actually like the way that this particular strip and blog post engage with him, but it's like a long conversation. So let's dip our toe into the waters and then return, you know, on another fine summer picnic day or something. You should have gone first in the draft, not Kent Parson. I really like how you formatted Kent Parson in this document. Yeah, I'll post a screenshot or something. Um, hello, everyone. Welcome to hell. The lights are flickering on and off. Yeah, man, listen, uh, I don't know if Jack should have gone first in the draft. First of all, he very obviously had a drug problem that led him to committing suicide. So I feel like Dex is missing some information. Okay, let's think about this. Re Jack Zimmerman. I think this gives us a little bit of insight into the anticipation that people felt for him beyond the information we get on the hockey prints. And I think it shows like Dex is what, five years, six years. I guess if Biddy is five years younger than Jack, then Dex is six years younger than Jack, which means that Dex, if he was paying attention to major junior hockey, could have had Jack as like somebody to look up to, a minor hero, if you will. And uh, that's interesting. Write me more fake about that, please. All right. Anyway, secondly, let's kind of finally talk a little tiny bit about Kent Parson. What does this introduction of his name do? What does, like, what is happening in this moment when we see Kent Parson, who, like, none of us know who he is yet, but obviously, like, I'm losing my shit, so we all know who he is. What does this moment do? How does it introduce him? So I'm going to be totally honest and state that when I first read this particular strip, I do not think this stuck out to me at all or I noticed. But the difference between me reading this strip in 2016, sitting alone on my couch, and other people reading it who have been following along with Check Please and the creator of Check Please is that when you're in a fandom and you're reading analytically as things are coming in bit by bit, you really comb over the text and pick out everything that's in there. And I'm pretty sure that this name is dropped in here with intention and also in dialogue with the other things that the creator has been talking about. And while I don't know because these tweets don't exist anymore and how could you find them even if they did because they're going to be buried under like six additional years of tweets, I don't know exactly when Ngozi started introducing this character on her own social media, but she was consciously building anticipation for this character. 
as she was leading up to his introduction. The fact that he's referenced in the blog post, put a pin in that, make sure that you won't have missed this detail here. It also plays on the fact that Jack's backstory is primarily given in the hockey prints. And as we talked about it there, a lot of it's very vague. A lot of the details are given in sort of very generalized, almost sort of like a serial sort of codified fairy tale language. So we don't actually know that much at this point in the production of the comic about exactly what happened to Jack. And it seems to be a kind of open question, doesn't it? So all of a sudden you're getting like a new detail. And you made the point on our outline that it also kind of sets Kent up as a like foil or antagonist character here because Dex is specifically drawing the point it should have been you, not Kent Parson. I just felt a little frizzed of the same sort of like, oh boy, that I felt. I have a bad memory and I don't remember exactly the timeline of being introduced to Kent, but I think by this point we had already seen art of him. I'm pretty sure. And I think at this point, Ngozi had already tweeted about him uh, the same way that she tweeted about and made art of various characters early on in the comic before they were flushed out in the comic itself. This is what I remember. Again, could be wrong, or I could be mixing up my timeline. He could have been introduced and then there was an inundation of art. But, but these things come pretty close together. Ngozi definitely raised awareness of and appreciation for this character before he ever entered the stage. And... The fandom, as you noted, because we had so little to kind of comb over and get excited about because we were getting these little drips of an update at a time. Not that there's not lots to, you know, not that there's not a lot to be excited about in this particular strip or any given, you know, update, but certainly it's not, you're not being presented with a, with a huge tome. So there's, there's lots of combing over, as you said, each detail for information that you can like use for a fanfic or whatever. Uh, I wasn't really writing fanfic at this time, but I was very excited about the the comic and was talking about it with friends. And this little introduction of this character who I just felt the presence of and who soon after this will become very important is like fucking drugs is what it's like. I mean, not to be flippant about uh, drug use, but to be flippant about drug use. Like getting a little taste of Kent Parson in this strip, even now going back and reading it many years later, knowing that like ultimately this is going places that we will examine later. I am so excited because here's what I think this moment is doing, right? The introduction of Kent Parson does a couple of things genre wise. It introduces much in the same way that Biddy and Jack had antagonistic energy in the last year in the same way that many sports narratives have antagonistic energy, it introduces a traditional sports narrative antagonistic figure, which just feels delicious. It gives us, as you said, more information about Jack's history, which, you know, at this point we were all sort of like begging for crumbs and picking up whatever we could get to understand the enigma of Jack giggly Zimmerman so that we could really start to understand like who this man was. 
And simultaneously, because it introduces this other man into Jack Zimmerman's life, I didn't read it as romantic, you know, the first time I, I saw his name. But because it introduces another figure that both fits a sports narrative figure and introduces some complicating element into the history of the person we know will be the love interest, a Biddy, there's also a fulfillment of a rom romance genre trope. So by this like little drop of a name, all of a sudden, there's this immense satisfaction of two genre conventions being fulfilled in a way that makes you want to dig through the comic for more. And I think that that's really smart. And I think that that's why this introduction is so exciting, either in the context of fandom or in the context of rereading. It's like the satisfaction of just knowing where it's gonna go. The same way that I feel excited anytime I start a piece of media that I really love, anytime I rewatch it or reread it, I feel this little frisson of excitement at the beginning because I know where it's going and I know I'm gonna be satisfied by it. It's deliberate, it's deliberate. I cannot stress enough, no matter what we say about this character, no matter what is said about this character, specifically he was introduced to create excitement. Anticipation was built around him by design. This is part of it. I mean, to a certain extent, it's just smart storytelling. Like... Oh, it's really smart storytelling. Yeah, I mean, if you have Kent Parson roll up to Epic Hegster in a few strips and you've never heard of him before and he's coming out of nowhere, it's slightly less weighty and seems slightly less valid than if you've dropped his name a couple of times. Because then you go back and you read the comic and you're like, oh, this person was always part of it. Yeah, it's, it's really effective seeding, essentially. To your point about speculation about Jack's backstory. Yeah, I mean, when I got into the fandom in 2016, I don't know how many times I'm going to say that during this podcast, there was an enormous amount of speculation. It was like one of the great mysteries in the fandom. What happened to Jack? What happened to Jack at the draft? What was the sequence of events? What actually happened? Did he kill himself or did he, you know, was he trying to kill himself or did he accidentally overdose? Were he and Kent dating or were they not? Or was there some other thing going on? Did he overdose and then because he overdosed, he was not drafted? Or did he overdose and then because he overdosed, he voluntarily withdrew from the draft, which by the way is something that doesn't happen in real life, or was he drafted and then something happened? Was he drafted second after Kent and because he didn't like that result, he did something? And now I think some of this has been clarified, but the phrasing that Dex uses here you should have gone first, not Kent Parson, is a little bit misleading, potentially deliberately misleading, or maybe she just didn't or possibly even still doesn't have the exact sequence of things ironed out, but it implies that Kent went first and Jack went second, when I think the actual context is that Kent went first and Jack was not drafted at all, or perhaps that 
Kent went first because Jack could not go first because he was not an option. So still, there's a lot of this that hasn't been ironed out or solidified. And it's maddening, and I think it was even more maddening at the time. And there's, like, very scant evidence for, like, how to piece this together. So the way that this is phrased here is, like, a major facet of trying to, like, put things back together. And this is the kind of thing that, like, in some senses, does it really matter? Like, I don't know, not really. Like, the emotional beats are sort of all in place, no matter what the sequence of events was. On the other hand, is somebody who, like, cares about these characters and also somebody who writes fanfic, you know, I would kind of like to know because I'd like to know what parameters I'm, I'm writing around. Maybe even the most interesting thing about Kent's introduction here is something that's not even in the actual comic. It's that until, I want to say, 2016 or maybe early 2017, there used to be a line in this blog post that said, who is Kent Parson? And then the response was probably one of my favorite characters. And there's this like weird big space between the answer before and the answer after where this particular bullet point used to be in this blog post. And that itself is really interesting because it sort of makes the fact that it's missing ultra visible. But I have a very clear memory of seeing this, internalizing it, seeing it reiterated around the fandom in like all kinds of meta posts. And then one day while I was writing a meta post that I've actually still never published about Kent Parson, going back to try to get this link and ascertain where is this little tidbit and finding that it wasn't there. And I eventually recovered it on the Wayback Machine, which is only interesting because it substantiates that, yeah, this was just deleted. And the context in which this, like, would come up over and over again would be this argument in the fandom about, is Kent Parson, like, bad and abusive? Or is he not even important to the comic? So it shows some kind of flawed priorities on the behalf of people who are overly invested in him that they care about him so much, or is there justification for caring about him so much and or thinking he's cool and not abusive or being a fan of his or whatever. And the fact that Ngozi had said that he was probably one of her favorite characters was this interesting little piece of the puzzle about how we were supposed to read and interpret him. And oftentimes people who were fans of his, who were either being defensive or in fact actually getting attacked for being fans of his, would point to the fact that it feels patently absurd that the creator would say that a character who is meant to be read as abusive was probably one of her favorites. 
you too can go to the Wayback Archive and see where this used to be if you are invested in doing so. But I want to talk a little bit about just the feeling of unstable ground that this pattern of deletion has left me with, especially as we are revisiting the comet. I am invested in Kent Parson as a character. I don't think that's a secret or, or unclear. I was really excited about his role in the narrative. I was really into him and the way that he narratively was sort of a foil or antagonist to Biddy and to Jack. I think there's like an interesting, to borrow secrets phrase, there's an interesting triangulation between these three characters and, and I'm really interested in it. But I've never had this experience with a fandom before where A, it's a small enough fandom that the creator feels like she's involved in the creation of the fandom. And B, where because it's not this corporate entity making something and every tweet is not going through a series of approval processes and so on and so forth. I've never had this experience before with a fandom where pieces of what I considered to be either canon or important word of God or like important things that the author had commented on just disappeared, which happens over and over again in this fandom. Like things that I very distinctly remember knowing suddenly the tweet where that information was held no longer existed. And then being told by people who like either didn't agree with me or hadn't been in the fandom for as long, so had never seen that tweet or whatever, that I was crazy for remembering it and caring about it. It's a really weird emotional experience to be really, really invested in a piece of media and then be told that the way that you're invested is like wrong or that you don't remember what you remember that your reality is not real. Like that's a really strange experience that is not typically part of my fandom experience, having been in fandom for, you know, since 2003 or something like that. That's not a common thing that I've, that I've felt in fandom. Have I felt it elsewhere? Maybe, uh, but let's not get into that here. So I don't know, I wanted to know what you felt having come into the fandom a bit later, but having also experienced this instability of reality, I guess is what I'll call it, regarding Kent Parson and regarding information about him as with this blog post. Oh boy. Well, here's how I situate this. As the creator of her own blog posts about her own comic and her own tweets about her own characters, it is absolutely her right to delete whatever she feels like. And to be clear, this is not the only thing she has deleted. She has deleted a lot of things, a lot of tweets, a lot of blog posts. I'm actually kind of starting to wonder if some of these tweets were not deleted so much as they're just like old enough that Twitter is no longer retaining them. I'm not totally sure if that's possible, but certainly there are a lot of things that have been deliberately deleted because the timeline, you know, it's like they were deleted when I got into the fandom. Things about Kent Parsons' cat. Things about, you know, where he's from and how he lives. And there's also other stuff that's been deleted that's not about Kent Parsons. So it's not like 100% like anti-parse violence or whatever. A lot of shit's been deleted. And I do, before we even talk about this, want to just like state for the record as many times as I have to on this podcast 
that she's the creator, this is all her intellectual property, she doesn't owe fans anything in the sense of like maintaining it on her own social media accounts forever just because some fans found those tweets interesting. On the record, I also agree with this very much. Like just because I'm having a particular reaction and feeling doesn't mean that Ngozi should or should not do anything. It's just, I wanna think about the effect of those decisions. But even if it's her right, I'm not sure it was necessarily a smart or a kind thing to do. The smart aspect of it relates to the fact that most of this content is being produced in a venue where it can be preserved in some form or another. Things she has deleted about Kent Parson, either screenshots of them or reblogs of them or internet archive impressions of them or just the memory of them among fans in the Check Please community persist to this day. So the point of deleting those posts is not so much to get rid of the information or make it as though they never existed. It's only to frustrate people who are aware that she is deleting the information for some reason. I suppose it's also possible that if she's doing it, it's because it serves her or gives her comfort in some way, which also is valid. But when you're a creator who's putting things out in public, especially if you're using a platform like Tumblr, which has virality built into it as one of its central features, that has obviously helped Ngozi spread her work quite a bit. But on the flip side, it also spreads things that maybe at a certain point you wouldn't want spreading. And that's basically what's happened with this character, is that there is this collective memory, and this is the phrase that I think is most applicable to what's going on with Kent Parson. There is a collective memory of everything that's been said and everything that's been felt about him going back to his introduction. And fans talk to each other. They talk to each other in public, they talk to each other in private, and this information circulates around. When I got into the fandom, there was no visible trace or any comment from Ngozi about the fact that Kent Parson had a cat. But in all of these fucking fanfics, Kent Parson had a cat. And if you did a lot of digging on Tumblr, you would see people basically saying they were pretty sure this cat was canon, that it came from the creator, or they had seen pictures of the cat. But for whatever reason, the, you know, annotation on the wiki page went to a deleted tweet. So it was really, really impossible to, like, know where this came from. But, like, people were pretty sure. And then in, I think, 2017, somebody posted a picture of an in-progress sketch of Ngozi's that they had screen-capped of Kent with the cat. And it was deleted off of that person's post pretty quickly because 
they got some flack for posting things that they shouldn't be posting because Ngozi didn't necessarily want them posting it. It's possible that that's true. I think it's something you can work out some other time in some other space. Even though that person deleted that post, it had already been reblogged by a bunch of people. Then I went and had a conversation with that fan, and that fan was like, yeah, the cat was absolutely canon. It used to be wide knowledge, like widespread knowledge. Like everybody knew he had a cat. Everybody knew like what the cat's name was. It was like something everybody, everybody knew. And she then shared with me her year one Kickstarter book plate, which was a drawing that Ngozi had done for her of Kent with his cat, like a separate drawing. And then later in the year, she did make a couple of abstract comments in various places about the fact that yes, he had a cat. But I go into all of this history basically to ground the idea that all of these deletions are frustrating because it speaks very plainly to a creator trying to maintain or perhaps reassert control over something that inherently they have lost total control over, which indeed is the mechanism that you're engaging in when you put an artwork like Check Please out into the world for public consumption. You cannot rewrite the history of your own canon, even if you want to. And I think this is really worth thinking about because as well, not only was Ngozi putting Check Please out into the world to be examined and thought about by whoever wanted to, which is again, like when art is in a public space, Everyone is allowed to think and talk about that art in whatever manner they wish to, as long as it is not inappropriate towards the creator. You can think whatever you want about Duchamp and the fountain. You can think it's like amazing, or you can be like, that's a urinal. Both of those thoughts are fine, and Duchamp, well, he's dead now, but when he was alive, he couldn't do anything about it. This is how engaging with art works. But it is really interesting to me that Ngozi, as we've seen in multiple blog posts now, including this blog post where... Uh, Ngozi specifically mentions the transformative fandom to court the creation and encourage the creation of a transformative fandom, which has transformative in the name of the fandom, and then try to reassert control over the way that people are thinking about your artwork is completely understandable from an emotional level. If people are thinking things you don't want them to think, it could be very frustrating. But it is also kind of bonkers to me from any kind of fandom level, any kind of like understanding narrative theory level, any kind of understanding how art criticism and art engagement works. Once you have put a piece of art or piece of intellectual property or piece of yourself into the public in this way, it is impossible to control what everyone thinks about it. And I think it is not ethically sound to attempt to control the way people think about it. And I'm not calling Ngozi unethical here for deleting tweets. Again, she can do whatever she wants. It's her Twitter. But I think if we kind of examine the impact that these deletions had on the fandom, that is opposed to how I personally engage with archiving 
and the way that I personally think about creating and putting things into the public. I think it's also different when, like for example, if you have a personal Twitter, a personal blog or whatever, and you're writing about like your life versus when you have made a piece of art and you're giving information to people who like that piece of art about that piece of art, like these are different kinds of personal releasings of information, I guess. And for me, there's something different about deleting those things. I mean, but even still, I mean, context doesn't matter or intent doesn't matter on Tumblr. Reblogging is the mechanism on which the site functions. So it doesn't matter how you personally feel about the content that you put out into the world. Like, it doesn't matter how personal it is or how confessional it is or if it's behind whatever. I mean, it's just like, if it's been reblogged, that's it. It's gone. And the reason why that's the case is because Tumblr was not built for fandom and it was not built for personal blogging. It was built for circulating viral ad content. The reason why Tumblr's like DM features are so bad and why its comment features are so bad is because the site is built specifically to not court any kind of feedback. The feedback is circulating the content. It is not coming up with thoughts about the content. And I mention this because this mechanism worked really well for Ngozi. I think absolutely the fact that Check Please was on Tumblr was a major part of its success and a major part of like why it flourished. But this cuts two ways. You can't have just the popularity that comes from the devil's bargain you made in using this platform you also get the consequences. And the consequences are your content goes off in a direction that you can't control if you're very popular in you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of directions that you can't control. And they can append anything they want to it. That is just how it is. I mean, I guess there's some probably terms of service that dictate, I don't know, you can't put like Nazis on it or whatever, but that's basically the bargain. That's basically the bargain is if you're getting the built-in capability, the built-in functionality, the built-in perk of making it really, really easy for people to do your PR and promotional work for you, you also get the downside that they can say whatever they want to on your post and it's going to live on their blogs forever. And people are going to continue to see it and it's going to keep being out there. And it's just a matter of knowing where to look and how to find it. And Kent Parson is ingrained in the collective memory of this fandom. And the people who were in the fandom when he was introduced, remember how it felt and what it was like to be there and what the tone and what the idea was. And they wrote fanfics that implicitly communicated those feelings and those ideas and people read them 
and they wrote blog posts and people read them and everything that we are producing now in 2020 about Ken Parson is in some way informed by the genealogy of ideas about Ken Parson that stem from the original intent and the original context. You just can't take that out of the character. It's all part of it. It's all layered. It's all buried. It's all haunting the whole thing. So good luck. Good luck. And um, yeah, I guess now we're way far away from this, but your original question was literally, how do you feel basically about, about these things being deleted? And in general, I think it's not so much the deletions specifically, although they are part of this, obviously. It is the fact that I developed a positive feeling about this character based on how he was presented in the text, how he was presented in the paratext, what the creator said about him generally, how he was presented in the paratext, and then also what content, including fix and discussions, fans made or had about him based on what was in, you know, those primary texts, so to speak. I am not stupid. I am a pretty adept critical reader. Obviously, I come to things with my own bias, but without getting too into my own bio, I just know that I'm pretty good at interpreting the evidence that's presented to me. And my general feeling was, this is an interesting character and I feel excited about him because that's what I'm getting from this text, from the person who wrote the text, and from the other people who are also consuming it. And so to be told over 2019 and 2020 that that was wrong, it was never like that, you were fundamentally incorrect in your assessment of how this character was presented is maddening because I am like pretty confident that that is a lie. And it feels bad to be in that situation when I have spent so much of my energy, physical and emotional, and a lot of my money, to be honest, on being a fan and a supporter of this comic, even if at many times critical. Like, this is, what, episode 38 of a podcast that we spend hours and hours every week, like, working on? Listen, I love it. I have a lot of fun. This is like a highlight of my week for me. Even if Ngozi came out and said something truly awful that I really disagreed with, which I highly doubt she would, I think I'd probably want to continue doing this. But uh, yeah, I, I mean to basically have the feelings that I feel about this comic and then basically be told by the creator, like, no, you dummy. This character was never important. And the fact that you thought he was cool is because you're a bad, dumb reader who sucks. 
isn't like an amazing feeling. That's exactly the kind of feeling that I'm talking about. I've been told by various corporate entities, showrunners, et cetera, that I'm part of a group of fans who are reading the text incorrectly, but the circumstances of this particular case are pretty different. And being told not only are you reading a text incorrectly, but that doing so is harmful, essentially, is definitely something I think we should keep discussing and unpacking. Ultimately, it's important too to think about like fandom is obviously an intellectual endeavor. Here we are using all of our grand intellects to think about this comic, but it's also very much an emotional endeavor. Like I am making this podcast and spending hours every week uh, watching Seeker get eaten by the best cat in the world and devoting many, you know, a lot of time to thinking about this comic because I really love it and I'm really emotionally invested in it. And even when I'm frustrated by it, you know, I have spent a lot of my emotional energy and money and time and life of the past five years really engaging deeply with this piece of media. And so feelings and, and relationship to the way that the comic is being discussed is like a big part of fandom. And I think unlike in other fandoms, it is maybe impossible to completely extricate the experience of reading this comic from the emotional experience of being in the fandom if you were in the fandom. Like obviously if you read the comic in a vacuum, that's one thing. But if you read the comic in the context of the fandom, like this is also what happened to me with various posts. I was like writing meta, went to go look for something and Gozi had said and it had disappeared. You know why I write meta? I don't write enough of it, but I write some of it because I'm completely obsessed with this goddamn comic and I want to think about it and tell other people oh, look at this cool thing that I noticed. Let's explore that together. That's an act of love, right? Like, yes, it's an act of criticism, but it's also an act of love. And when you're, not to get too emotional here, but when you're in the middle of doing something out of love and you reach for something that you remember substantiating this passion you have and that thing is no longer there, it's very unsettling. It's not bad that it's not there except emotionally for me but like as far as Ngozi's concerned yeah she can do whatever she wants again but it is very unsettling to reach for something and find it's not where you thought it was as part of your act of of love towards a piece of media well what's so interesting about that is that it's actually kind of a parallel for what happens with Kent Parson within the comic Mm -hmm. we'll explore that more later do you have anything else you want to add I think I'll have plenty of opportunities to say many things about this character and his impact on the comic and on the fandom. And um, yeah, I mean, I think starting from here, we're basically going to have plenty of opportunities not only to comment on these things, but also to sort of track like the thing that really drives me fucking crazy about this comic, which is... Yeah, I think it was building to a certain story and things happened and it didn't tell that story. And I think this moment with Dex making this comment about Kent Parson is the beginning of a plot being layered in that was eventually aborted. I, my first instinct was to make a, but we're pro-choice here joke. So uh, everyone can change their plots however they want. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, people can. And I think I've been probably even annoyingly repetitive saying over and over again that, like, the author of the text can do whatever they want. Like, you know, I'm not saying anybody owes me anything just because, I mean, actually, that's not true. What I'm owed is the things that I've paid for. But those have less to do with, like, creating the comic than they do with, like, ancillary. Yeah. I mean, I do kind of feel, I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like I'm owed a good story. But I'm not even actually sure that's true. Like, I'm not sure an author even owes you a good story. I think it's okay to criticize if an author doesn't give you that. But it's not like a contract. Like, I'm reading this because I think it's good. Like, trust me, I consume a lot of things that I know aren't good. But, um, yeah, I mean, she doesn't owe us anything. But the point of this podcast, in a lot of ways, is to try to figure out, like, what happened here. We were fucking obsessed with this comic because it did something for us beyond just, like, you know, I want to suck on Jack's big tits or whatever. I don't want to Jack's big tits for the record. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is the venue to get into it. I was just trying to think of like, what's a funny thing to say? What's like a ha ha thing? Why else would you read this comic? And like, I was kind of being facetious. But yeah, I mean, some of it is just that I'm like, oh, big, big, dumb hockey idiot who's subby. What stories can be told? So that's part of it, obviously. But also, like, I don't know. I was reading this story because I thought it was good and I thought it was telling one kind of story and then all of a sudden it was over and I was like, what the fuck was that? So the answer to the question is this podcast. So yeah, that's what we're here to figure out. It's not saying, oh, she owed this character a better storyline or she did this character wrong. Like, he's not a real person. His feelings can't be hurt. But I'm frankly shocked because if you went back to the person who read this comic in 2016 and said, this is what happened, I would genuinely be surprised. I would really not have believed that the whole thing would turn into a slow going train wreck. So yeah, I mean, that's what we're doing here. We're here to start to piece together which narrative and emotional and plot based decisions made this thing into what it was for better or for worse. And I think despite the fact that people, especially readers who came in later feel like Kent Parson not only isn't a big part of that, but was never supposed to be a big part of that. I, I just kind of don't think that's true. I am so excited for everything that we're about to get into. Ugh, we had to read all those fucking comics about, like, Beatty and checking and the frogs and 
some other shit. I'm gonna meet Biddy's mom. But I think things are gonna be okay. What are we looking at next time? Cool question. Let's uh, go back to the outline. Next time, we will be looking at 2.5 Providence Falconers. I've been Secret, and you can find me on Tumblr at Camillar, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G at Tumblr, and also as Familiar on AO3. And you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or tomato underscore greens on AO3. And you can find our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com or on Podbean or on Spotify. And please vote if you can in an American election for a Democrat. Also volunteer if you have a chance. Yeah. These are really important. I'm not going to go into a soapbox here, but I will say briefly that I understand completely being disillusioned by the mess of our system and getting involved in alternative kinds of direct action. I have familiarity with that life myself, um, but I ask you to please vote no matter what your leanings may be about the utility of that vote. It is useful and important to vote for a Democrat so please do it and, uh, and volunteer your time as you can to make sure that other people also vote for Democrats, please. That's a weird thing to have at the end of the episode. Yeah, but it's true. I would even go so far to say that direct action is not enough. You also have to vote. And at this point, you have to vote for Democrats. Joe <laughs> Biden all the way. He's my man. I will, I will say direct action uh, does certain things. But what it doesn't do is get a president into office. So please, yeah, please vote. Or senators, or congresspeople, you know. Or any, if you're in a state with propositions that doesn't do anything about those propositions and passing them or not passing them, well, all right. (laughs) Okay, oh, you want me to say goodbye. Yep, we're all fucked, see ya. (laughs) Bye.